This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Good evening. Welcome to Navarra Live. My name's Aaron Bastani. Tonight we have the B team. And Mike Bancola is joining me down the line. Mike, how are we? I'm very well. It's lovely to be joining you. Uh, the B team back in action. The B team back in action. You're coming through loud and clear. We like to hear that. Uh, coming up later tonight, Lindsay Hoyle has rolled back on his promise to give the SNP a debate on a Gaza ceasefire. Labour have a new policy for tackling misogyny in school classrooms and an eyebrow-raising moment from the US State Department. Stay tuned for all of that, particularly that last story. Infuriating. First story. Lee Anderson lost the Tory whip after saying that Islamists had, quote, got control of London and its mayor, Sadiq Khan. It's plunged the Conservatives once again into discussions of Islamophobia within the party. But Anderson has appeared on GB News to defend himself. I'm not sorry, uh, Chopper, because I stand by my words. Um, it's not racist to call out Islamists. Islamists or Islamism is a political... But Khan isn't Islamist, is he? No, no, it's not. I never said he was. So if you watch the clip again, mm. it's been twisted. I never said he was an Islamist at all. But when I'm calling out these people, these people are organising these marches, these horrible marches, these cruel marches in London. When I call them out, I'm calling out a tiny minority of the Muslim population. I said on my statement, which I gave you this morning, that 99% or whatever, the vast majority of Muslims in this country, decent, hardworking people that make a contribution. But there's a small section of this, and it's the same with, in, in, in all walks of society, any religion, there's a small percentage that will go out and cause How many problems. do you know who are Muslim? How many friends of yours are Muslim? Well, I've got a few in Parliament um, and a few back home. Not, what, do not, they, not, what do they say to you when they see your remarks? Like, from last uh, well, the ones in Parliament are not very happy. Um, about remarks, but what I say to him is, my comments weren't racist. You can be a white person and be a Muslim. You can be Chinese and be a Muslim. You can be an African and be a Muslim. So it's not racist. And this Islamophobia, I don't really understand what that means other than you're criticising what's in the Quran or a religion. It's okay to criticise a religion. You know, if I don't believe that much in Christianity. I believe in evolution. But when I say that, are they going to say I'm Christianophobic? Mm. I'm against Christian. No, I'm not. That's that's up to you if you want to go to church and preach. It's up to you if you're a Muslim. You do whatever you want to do. So, Islamophobia is not is not racist. I don't even know why we've got this word. Why do we have this word? Let's just get rid of it. Lee Anderson, you don't get to write the Oxford Dictionary just yet. Uh, what Anderson is doing here is diverting a discussion about the obviously racist nature of his previous comments to a different topic altogether. The meaning of the word. Islamophobia. But here's the thing. We don't need to settle the meaning of that word or even use it to know that what Anderson said was racist. He painted a huge number of people protesting against the mass slaughter of almost entirely Muslims in Palestine as being controlled by shadowy extremist forces. And he painted the protesters that way because of the presence of large numbers of Muslims. Muslims who are largely brown or black, not white. Muslims who also openly engage in the practices of their faith, like wearing certain items of clothing or praying at certain times. And he said all of this without presenting a single shred of evidence that radical Islamists have anything to do with organizing the protests that have brought hundreds of thousands onto the streets. Finally, 
that Sadiq Khan is a very liberal mayor who just happens to be a Muslim. So why make that second bit all important? Now let's see what Anderson said next. I would put it to you that although this absolutely obviously was not your intention, it has ne- your comments have now uh, allowed the conversation yet again, as we see so often in these situations, to be dragged back towards Islamophobia and away from trying to deal with radical terrorism and extremism. Well, it is, but let, let's decide what Islamophobia is, Patrick. Mm. Is it blasphemy? Because I think that's sort of where we're going with this. You know, you know, if you if you blaspheme against the Lord, that is blasphemy. And I think Islamophobia is pretty much the same thing if, if you're a Muslim. These things aren't illegal. It's not illegal to criticise a religion at all in this country. But we're talking about something completely different. We're talking about Islamists, a political ideology that are intent on interfering with Parliament over there, like they didn't last week. And it worked last week, and it's very dangerous, Patrick, that due to the threats, the Speaker, he felt that he had to change parliamentary process in that place because of threats to MPs. So this is Ismailis, mm. you know, directly, really, you could say it's indirect, but I think directly, this influencing what goes off in Parliament. So Anderson's argument is that talking about Islamophobia is distracting us from the real issue, which is religious fundamentalists hijacking democracy. Again, he presents no evidence that any such thing is happening, except the presence of Muslims protesting, as is their right outside Parliament. And at the same time, he manages to also suggest that the whole idea of Islamophobia is designed to stop people taking issue with any aspect of Islam as a faith. That's a lesson he's taken straight from another right-wing Tory, Equalities Minister Kemi Badenoch, who described the current definition of Islamophobia as creating, quote, a blasphemy law by the back door. And it comes in the context of Suala Bravman and Liz Truss both expressing anti-Muslim sentiments just last week. Yesterday, former Tory minister Paul Scully also described Tower Hamlets in London and Sparkhill in Birmingham, both districts with large Muslim populations, as having, quote, no-go areas. He's since apologised for those remarks. While some Tories clearly don't want to head in the direction MPs like Anderson, Braverman and Truss want to, they may not have much of a choice. That's because there's another party hoping to mop up Conservative voters who do want to go down that road. In a statement, leader of the Reform UK party, Richard Tice, said this about Mr Anderson's comments. Thanks to woefully weak leadership on the part of our authorities, extreme Islamists are creating a sense of fear and intimidation in our capital. With every failure to crack down on their behaviour, they become emboldened. Lee Anderson may have been clumsy in his precise choice of words, but his sentiments are supported by millions of British citizens, including myself. Never has Westminster and the craven left-leaning establishment been so out of touch with ordinary people. I do not and will not give a running commentary on any discussions I have with any MPs, but those MPs have my number. And here's how Lee Anderson responded to that invitation. Just a yes or no question. Will you join the Reform Party? You're not saying yes or no there. And Richard Tice is saying clearly you'd be welcome in his party. Yeah. Well, uh, like I said, Chopper, I've been on a political journey, journey so you'll spin this any way you want. No, I'm for an answer. You'll say Lee Anderson rules out, doesn't rule out joining the Reform well, Party uh, and stuff like that. So I'm making no comment on my future. Um, I shall be sat in the chamber this afternoon on the Conservative benches. And um, there's no votes today, but there'll be votes tomorrow. I'll be voting with the government. That was a classic bit of evasion from Anderson because it turns out he'd already met 
with Richard Tice. And that's at least according to GB News' own political editor. Writing on social media this afternoon, Christopher Hope said that Anderson held private one-to-one talks with Richard Tice at a Holiday Inn Hotel in Derbyshire. All very partridge-esque. Uh, that was on Sunday, just 24 hours after Anderson lost the Tory whip. Mike, could Reform UK be about to get their first MP? Yeah, possibly. I mean, he does fit right in with their rhetoric and what they espouse as a party, right? It's kind of Islamophobia that the party have espoused. But I would say that, you know, Lee Anderson is also at home in the Conservative Party, right? I think part of the thing and part of the difficulty for the Conservative Party is that this isn't the first instance of Islamophobia in a party, if anything, far from it. So we've seen so many incidents in recent years from Boris Johnson's letterbox rant in, in The Telegraph to Zach Goldsmith's campaign against Sadiq Khan. Islamophobia, Islamophobia has been unfortunately, thriving in the in the Conservative Party. I mean, Varanus Farsi has been very, very vocal on this. She's spoken about how Islamophobia is institutionalised in the Conservative Party, which is partly why the Conservatives for the past couple of days have been tying themselves in not trying to label this as anything but Islamophobia and anything but racism, right? Because this is a party that for so many years has, you know, denied the existence of Islamophobia, minimised it, and it allowed it to thrive in the party. So I think, look, he'd, he'd find a home in, in the Reform Party, but his behaviour, his rhetoric for years and years, whether it's on Islamophobia, whether it's on issues of, of food insecurity, his language and rhetoric has been abetted and aided by the Conservative Party. The Conservative Party is an environment where this rhetoric is now thriving. Many Tory ministers and MPs are having a lot of trouble using the phrases Islamophobia anti-Muslim prejudice, and even racism, to describe recent comments by Lee Anderson. Were they Islamophobic? Well, I think the, the most important thing is that the words were wrong. They were ill-judged. They were unacceptable. You say it was wrong. Was it racist? Well, it was wrong. And uh, I'm not going to get into arguing about the rights and wrongs of what he said. It was wrong. In my book, wrong is a strong word. Is it I Islamophobic? No, I I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to get into a definition oh. of what is and isn't. I think oh. it's problematic. And I think we need further clarity on it. Problematic. Uh, this is clearly the line coming from Downing Street for ministers to follow in an attempt to steer Sunak safely between the racist wing of his party and its liberal wing. But nobody's buying it. Which is why this happened when illegal migration minister Michael Tomlinson appeared on LBC with Nick Ferrari. Why was it necessary for Lee Anderson to have the whip suspended? Where was the tolerance well, there? Well, I, I, Nick, respectfully, I, I think what Lee said was wrong, yes. and as a result, of, well, as a result of what he said, he had the the whip removed from him. That's that's so robust what was it action. specifically that meant the whip had to go? We agree it was wrong, but why was it wrong? Nick, it, it was wrong. What no, no, Lee but why said. Was it wrong? What he said was wrong. As a result of what he said, the whip was removed from him. That was robust action. No, that was why robust was it action wrong? that was That's taken. What I'm trying to get at. Um, it was wrong, Nick, because of what he said, and robust no, we're action going was taken so as a result. Well it was it was Let's try this a different way. Was it Islamophobic? What he said was wrong, and robust but, action was taken, no. and the whip was removed within 24 but, hours. Minister, was it Islamophobic? And uh, Nick, it was wrong. Minister, I'm going to, and I, I'm never, I'm normally a very polite man, I'm actually going to effectively put the fact, I'll ask you now, for the third time, I've asked you six times why it was necessary, for the third time, was it Islamophobic? 
Uh, Nick, it was wrong. I'll have to curtail the interview there. I'm grateful for your time, but enough already. Michael Tomlinson is the Minister of State for Illegal Migration, unable to answer a question. Isn't it funny? When Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party were being accused of anti-Semitism, every Conservative MP had a, a PhD in anti-Semitism. Oh, this is a trope. It goes back to 1931 or 1846. Or there's this academic, this professor, this august American institution said that. Will Jeremy Corbyn apologize? When he's being questioned on whether one of his colleagues said something racist, a very easy word we all understand, he can't say it. He can't say it. Uh, similarly to everything you've just heard, Sunak justified Anderson's suspension by also initially calling his words wrong and unacceptable, without saying exactly why they were wrong and unacceptable. After being criticised for that vagueness, the government has now come up with a better explanation. Earlier today, they said Anderson was wrong to conflate all Muslims with Islamists. Only took four days. Uh, Mike, what did you make of that clip, and why is Sunak's government struggling with uh, this whole story, even after suspending Mr. Anderson? I think it's partly because how the governments have treated pro-Palestine protesters in the first place. We have to remember that Lee Anderson's actually responding to an article that's written by Swella Braverman in The Telegraph, where she frames essentially pro-Palestine protesters as Islamists who have taken over the streets of London, and they're going to lead to the ghettoization of the UK. Those are her exact words in The Telegraph. So because the leading members of the government have essentially frowned upon these protesters, Sunak included, by the way, that's why the government can't go full out and be like, well, actually, Lee Anderson is an Islamophobe and he needs to be condemned completely. It's like, well, those comments weren't acceptable, but we're not going to label him as Islamophobe, partly because they have the same critiques of pro-Palestine protesters as well. Right? So they think these, these are mobs in the streets of London and all over the country who are coming together to incite hatred, to incite violence. And what's really frustrating about this is whenever ethnic minorities have a cause they care deeply about, they're framed as a problem. So we saw this in 2020 when people took to the streets about Black Lives Matter, you know, and campaigned ferociously across the country for an end to racial injustice. What happened in that scenario was that black people and, and people protested were framed as attacking British values, being ungrateful, moaning too much, you know, people saying we're, we're being overly woke, etc. You fast forward to four years where people are deeply concerned at the plight of Palestinians and, and the war on Gaza. And these people have been framed as kind of Islamist, violent mobs. These protests have been largely peaceful. I've been to quite a few of them, been largely peaceful. Nothing you know, terrible has happened in many of these protests. These are people who deeply care about the situation in Gaza. The government can't go too hard on Leanderson because they share some of these sentiments. Ideally, the government don't want to see us protesting about Palestine. They don't want to see people voicing this kind of passionate frustration about what's going on there. That's the general context, I think, which is why the government can't be too hard on, on Lee Anderson, because this is a rhetoric that the governments have also espoused themselves. Important to say as well, my colleague Michael Walker said this last night, we have had demonstration after demonstration in London for months, hundreds, millions of people over all of these, of course, cumulatively, millions of people. We've had no altercations with the police. We've had no really profound property damage. I mean, some graffiti or whatever, you know, somebody might tag something, but nothing like March 26th and 2011, or the student protests in 2010. And yet these protests, by any measure, incredibly peaceful, by any measure, are somehow being painted as a threat to democracy itself. You have to ask why. Why? Well, I, I think it's inarguably because many working class people 
from minority backgrounds are on it. And if they're appealing to their religious values, so what? Christians can do that. Among all this, conservative peer Saida Warsi has detected a pattern. Here's what she said on Channel 4 News. I'm really concerned that the Prime Minister is so reluctant to call out Islamophobia and anti-Muslim racism when it's so obvious. What does it reveal about your party? Um, I think I'm just really concerned as to whether or not this is somehow an electoral strategy or whether it's just personal prejudice amongst my colleagues. But either way, whatever it is, it has to be resolved. It has to be dealt with. We cannot have a community of over four, four million being stigmatized and stereotyped and targeted in this way. Uh, as, as the Prime Minister said today, that we have a responsibility as parliamentarians to to create a sense of ease, to not ratchet this up. But all I'm seeing is so many of my colleagues using the language of hate, using the language of division and pitting community against community. And if the Prime Minister genuinely believes that the job of parliamentarians is not to do that, then he needs to speak to his colleagues and ask them to stop. A Tory Lord there saying her colleagues are using, quote, the language of hate. A Krishnan Guru Murthy went on to ask Warsi about the effectiveness of hatred as an electoral strategy. Theresa May once warned the party about being the nasty party. I mean, is this now looking like not just nasty, but racist, Islamophobic, hateful party? It breaks my heart to see my party being so toxic in this way. It breaks my heart to see them really reflecting the awful populist post-truth politics of the United States. Uh, and it breaks my heart to think that they believe, or colleagues believe, that you know projecting a somehow rabid racist is, is what's going to win them votes at the next election. The things that are going to win us votes at the next election is explaining what kind of program we have for the United Kingdom. You know, what we're going to do with the economy, how we're going to improve healthcare, how we're going to make sure people can go to hospital and get treated on time, how our schools are going to be not crumbling. These are the, how inflation is going to be under control, how people are going to be able to afford to buy a house. Very and because fast. unfortunately we don't have the answers to these big questions, we've chosen to fight culture wars. It's got to stop. Side Wars. This is a this is a, a Tory peer, a Tory baroness. Side Warsi. You sound like Ash Sarkar on Navarra Media. Politicians no longer even want to address the big problems. They, fo they focus on this stuff instead. So true. By the way, and I have to finish with this. Lee Anderson is saying that London is controlled by Islamists while posting a, a tweeted picture of drinking a pint on a Sunday evening in London. You know. I don't understand these people. It's Schrodinger's mayor with Sadiq Khan. On the one hand, he's ultra-identity politics, Mr. LGBT rights. Uh, we can have, you know, trans performers reading stories to kids in libraries. And at the same time, he's controlled by Islamists, religious fundamentalists, who want to turn back the clock a thousand years. What is it? Because I'm pretty sure a thousand years ago, we didn't have drag story time. Maybe in the little world of Lee Anderson, we did. Next story. A controversy hit the Commons last week when an SNP motion calling for a ceasefire in Gaza was hijacked and quashed by Labour. After Speaker of the House Lindsay Hoyle was accused of being blackmailed by Keir Starmer's party, Hoyle apologised and then promised the SNP an emergency debate on a ceasefire in Gaza. But Hoyle has now backtracked on that promise. Here's SNP Westminster leader Stephen Flynn. 
Last week, of course, the SNP was denied its vote on ensuring that we had an immediate ceasefire in Gaza, but also that we recognised the collective punishment of the Palestinian people. The Speaker apologised to myself and to everyone else for what has happened and said, come back and we'll have a debate. So the SNP, we came back today, we put forward a motion which would have a debate on ending arms sales to Israel, but also importantly, ensuring that the UK voted for an immediate ceasefire at the United Nations, a meaningful vote. The Speaker has told us we are not going to be able to have that debate and that vote. He promised us one thing and instead we're getting delivered another. Last week Westminster broke the rules, this week is breaking its word and ultimately it's the people of Gaza who are at the forefront of all of us. In Parliament, Flynn asked Hoyle to explain his reasoning for refusing the debate he had already promised the SNP. Be warned, you won't understand a single word you're about to hear. In determining whether a matter is proper to be discussed under standing order, I must have regards to two criteria. Firstly, the extent to which it concerns the administrative responsibilities of ministers of the Crown or could come within the scope of the ministerial action. I am satisfied that that matter does not relate to the areas of ministerial responsibility and falls within the scope of the ministerial action. Me neither. Uh, using that kind of by-the-letter procedural language, aka bullshitese, to explain why a debate that millions of people care about can't happen is not good for public faith in politics. And it's probably not good for Hoyle either. Is Mr Flynn again? There's obviously massive trust issues here. The Speaker of the House of Commons was very clear on Thursday that the SNP could have an emergency debate and a vote in relation to our views on Gaza, something we were denied on Wednesday. We wanted to have that debate on moving things forward, on refocusing back on the situation in Gaza and the challenge facing the Palestinian people, to end arms sales and obviously to ensure that the UK votes for an immediate ceasefire at the UN. We've been denied that despite the promises that have been delivered. You can't just break the rules and also break your words in a democracy. And I'm sure members right across all parties will be reflecting heavily upon that just now. So last week, Hoyle broke the rules, or at least the convention, and today he broke his word. It's no surprise then that around 80 MPs have now signed a no-confidence motion against the Speaker of the House. They include, obviously, SNP MPs, but also a lot of Tories as well. But that's no surprise, given the Conservatives face a long stint in opposition after the next election. It's in their interest to dislodge a Speaker and former Labour Party member who appears to have acted so brazenly in Labour's favour and against the smaller parties. Mike, uh, the Tories might have 100 MPs after the next election, which adds a whole new dynamic to this because actually they can look at how he's treating the SNP and reasonably infer well, we don't want the same treatment. Absolutely. I think for the Conservatives, lots of them are in the mentality of try and make our life position as, you know, as best as good as possible, right? So I think a lot of Conservative MPs are either making their beds or trying to leave the kind or in many ways, they're resigned to their fate as they're going to be the part of opposition. And Hoyle, it is quite clearly, he's shown that he's going to act in Labour's interest. He's shown that, you know, all it takes is a little word from Keir Starmer and he's willing to kind of bend to Starmer's, Starmer's will. So I think the Conservatives makes absolute sense to, to kind of get rid of him. I think what I would say is it does raise serious questions about our democracy that kind of parliamentary process can be broken in that way um, and hands can be made so dirty so quickly. Um, it does undermine your faith in politics and it does undermine your trust in the system. It's important that the opposition are able to kind of pose questions and have their voices heard in, in a system, by the way, in Britain where 
when you have big majorities like because like Labour are expected to win in some in some by some measures by some polls, we need a speaker that's willing to allow the opposition space and time to probe. That's fundamental to our democracy, right? Accountability from the opposition, probing from the opposition is all fundamental. See, I do think from the Conservatives' point of view, they have an incentive to, to get rid. But also maybe from our point of view when it comes to British democracy, it might also be important for us when it comes to allowing the kind of process of British politics to play out as we need it to. It might also make sense from that point of view. I think that's so important. And I do think it adds this new angle to stuff, right? You could have a, look, we don't know. The next election's a long way off. But you could have a, a Labour majority of 250. And it, th- there is a genuine concern here that Lindsay Hoyle will just give them carte blanche, right? It's one thing for John Burkow to be breaking with convention when you've got a hung parliament, which is what we had 2017 to 2019. It's quite another to be doing it when you've got a government with a supermajority. And it's very concerning. It's very, very worrying. If he's so amenable to pressure from Keir Starmer now, What's it going to be like when the guy's in MP, uh, when the guy's in uh, number ten Downing Street, when he's the Prime Minister? Deeply concerning. If you just care about democracy, you should be worried. Next story. As the race for the White House looms later this year, the war in Ukraine is becoming an even hotter topic on both sides of the Atlantic. Trump-supporting Republicans in the House of Representatives are currently delaying a package of foreign aid that would deliver sixty billion dollars to Ukraine. And Donald Trump has threatened to pull the US out of NATO altogether, recently saying he would encourage Russia to, quote, do whatever the hell they want to NATO countries that don't pay their dues. That's a prospect that is worrying European leaders who've gathered in Paris to discuss ramping up their own military response to the conflict in the East. At that meeting, French President Emmanuel Macron said this, If Europe, and especially I would say if each of our member states, including France, are sovereign, and if we consider that this war determines our future, which I deeply believe because our security as Europeans is at stake, should we give over our future to the American electorate? My answer is no, no matter how they vote. So we don't need to wait for the results. This was the purpose of today's meeting, and this is why I wanted to hold it now. Let's not wait to find out what the outcome will be. Let's decide now, because the facts are clear. It's our future. It's Europe's that's at stake. It's up to the Europeans to decide. If others want to join in and help, fantastic. But that is just an added bonus. Macron also raised the possibility of sending troops to Ukraine, saying, quote, there's no consensus today to send in an official manner troops on the ground. But in terms of options, nothing can be ruled out. A Kremlin spokesperson responded to those comments saying this, The very fact of discussing the possibility of sending certain contingents to Ukraine from NATO countries is a very important new element. In that case, we would need to talk about not the probability, but about the inevitability of a direct conflict. Of course, Vladimir Putin himself hasn't been shy about the dangers that an enhanced European engagement with the war would pose. This was him speaking in 2022, just two weeks before Russia invaded Ukraine. If Ukraine is part of NATO, and if they decide to return Crimea using military means, European countries will automatically be at war with Russia. The military capacities of NATO and Russia are incomparable, even though Russia is a military superpower, a nuclear superpower. There will be no winners. 
And that was Putin saying that if Europe is dragged into a war over Ukraine, Russia's nuclear arsenal would ensure there would be, in his words, no winners. There's good reason then that Macron's remarks were enough to spook other European leaders. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz responded saying, quote, that there will be no ground troops, no soldiers on Ukrainian soil sent there by European countries or NATO states. Macron's remarks are the strongest expression yet of European security concerns over a Trump election and the prospect of a weakened NATO. But they're also the most belligerent and perhaps the most dangerous when it comes to direct engagement of European troops in Ukraine. And they coincided with Joe Biden's appearance on American talk show Late Night with Seth Meyer, where he raised similar concerns. It seems like Donald Trump is saying Russia can do whatever they want to NATO countries. Are you shocked? That's what he is saying. He's been saying it all along. He's been saying it when he ran the last time. Look, the idea that any American, think about this. If I told you all there was going to be an American president who said, Putin, Putin, come do whatever you want. In, to, to NATO, if they don't, if the other guys on our team don't pay up every single cent they promise to pay for, I mean, what are we talking about here? What in God's name? How the idea that the president of the United States is inviting Vladimir Putin to invade Eastern, uh, Western countries is bizarre, absolutely bizarre, and it's totally against our interest. And by the way. I've known every major foreign leader for the longest time, and I know all these guys extremely well. They're scared to death what it means for them. For them, what it means if we walk away. I guess Trump has an obvious response to that, which is if they're so scared, they should pay up. And by the way, that's a very popular message with a lot of the American electorate. Because the context here is Biden could well lose in November, in which case it doesn't matter how bizarre he thinks anything is. It's entirely irrelevant, in fact. But strangest of all, to me at least, is how at the very moment Europe might lose the assistance of the world's most formidable military power, thereby becoming incredibly exposed, it's looking to actively raise the stakes. doesn't make any sense. We'd be much weaker and more vulnerable, which is precisely why we'd escalate a conflict and make it existential for us too. There's only one word to describe that. Idiotic. Why on earth would you want to turn a crisis in Europe into a catastrophe? And if you think that can't happen, history tells you otherwise. Just look at the march, thoughtless, idiotic, frivolous, into World War I more than a century ago. Yes, it can happen again. Next story. The state can do many things. It can mitigate and adapt to climate change. It can address the housing crisis. It can offer things like education and healthcare free at the point of use. And it can do all of this by taxing the owners of capital who currently benefit the most from our economic model. But Labour wants to do something else, namely build an army of influencers to take on Andrew Tate. The Guardian newspaper reports this of Shadow Education Secretary Bridget Phillipson. Phillipson said that in order to combat sexual harassment, Labour wanted schools to develop role models who could provide a powerful counterbalance to Tate and others like him. The Labour Party announced plans on Tuesday to help schools develop young male mentors and to teach pupils how to question the material they see on social media from people like Tate. Sorry guys, no maths today. We're going to talk about Andrew Tate's TikToks. Look, I agree that we need training in schools to spot fake news and charlatans, 
so that children can tell when the media and political class are lying to them about things like Iraq having weapons of mass destruction. Anyway, conspiracy theories and the like are bad. I'm sure we all agree on that, including those pushed by Tony Blair, by the way. But what does this all look like? Well, under the proposals, Labour would send regional improvement teams into schools to train staff on introducing a peer-to-peer mentoring programme. Discussing the proposal with The Guardian, Philipson said this, Young male mentors within schools would be a powerful counterbalance to some of the negativity that young men might be exposed to online. I would hope that the young male mentors involved would then also be able to serve their experiences, share their experiences rather, more widely. To kind of shift discussion around what it is to be growing up as a young man today in modern Britain. Philipson went on to express her hopes that some of the young men who become leaders in their schools could then reach even more people by becoming online influencers themselves. Now, none of this is bad in itself. It's undeniable misogyny is a problem. One in four women in England and Wales will experience domestic abuse in their lifetime, and, on average, two women a week are killed by a current or former partner in England and Wales. What's more, there's evidence to show this is a growing problem in schools. NASUWT General Secretary Patrick Roach said this, We know from reports from members, our casework and previous research that sexual harassment and sexist abuse towards both female teachers and pupils in schools and colleges is commonplace and that the majority of incidents fail to be reported or dealt with effectively. So there is undeniably a problem. But is this helped by the government training anti-misogynist influences? especially given the admission made by Mr. Roach there that complaints already being made don't go anywhere. Labour has previously said it would put lessons on treating women and girls with respect onto the school curriculum, as well as giving Ofsted the power to conduct annual safeguarding checks to identify harmful behaviour. That sounds very wise. But when Philipson mentioned shifting the, quote, discussion around what it means to be growing up as a young man today in modern Britain... You have to ask how much use that would be. Because a lot of men gravitate towards someone like Andrew Tate because he's talking, actually, about quite basic stuff. How to get money. How to win respect. These are increasingly prominent questions given our economic system means less money and less respect for working-class men. We've had 15 years of economic stagnation. If we have another 15 years of the same... I suspect influencers with hashtags won't be enough to stop young men embracing and experimenting with all kinds of regressive and reactionary ideas. We've culturally venerated money and fast cars while most people get poorer. What do you think is going to happen? Young people won't enjoy the same living standards as their parents, despite being told they're all just temporarily embarrassed millionaires. In other words, Andrew Tate is a symptom. There's also a concern for how Westminster looks at this stuff. There's a guy in the media. He's getting headlines. Let's start a commission or a quango. I can see it now. Labour announces new commissioner for Andrew Tate to head up the anti-Andrew Tate commission. Salary, £120,000. Annual budget, £1 million. And of course, the commissioner will be a former MP or maybe a one-time party advisor more fake jobs for Westminster. Mike, I think the state should focus on world-class housing, transport, healthcare, 
and education, and that this obsession with social media and moral panics is going to create even more fake jobs for the permanent political class. Am I being unfair? I think you're being totally unreasonable, Aaron. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm really messing. I think you're, you're absolutely spot on. I, I think the government or, or Labour rather have placed Andrew Tate on, on this kind of odd pedestal and, and I don't want to dismiss his influence at all. I think he is someone who's unfortunately fairly influential and young minds are being shaped by some of the things he's saying online. But what I would say is I think this kind of misses the point. It misses the kind of problem and the reason why he's risen to notoriety. And I think it also comes at a time when Labour aren't you know putting any meat in the bones as we kind of approach an election it came out today that you know 15 percent of households in the uk are you know living in food insecurity what's labor's kind of rhetoric or plan around that i think the reason why this andrew tate policy misses misses the, the kind of mark and i think there are two reasons number one they think about they speak about kind of these, these potential male mentors becoming influencers Influencers are rarely state-funded. You know, the idea of an influencer being funded or kind of backed by the state when they emerged to prominence through that kind of forum is, is speaks to like a misunderstanding about how influencers rise, how people like Andrew Tate become popular. You know, lots of people have cult-like followings that can't be garnered in that kind of way. And I think what's also important is sexism and misogyny is obviously a huge problem, right? It kills these are significant problems in this country and beyond. But the idea that mentors are going to come and say today for me misses the problem. And also you fail to understand how deep rooted this problem is. This is a cultural issue. It's an issue that is deeply embedded in school environments, in, in boardrooms, in, in, in all kinds of sectors in society. And the idea that mentors are going to you know help save the day misses the mark for me. I think we have to, we have to understand this as a, as a deeply rooted cultural issue. And when I think about schools, one of the big issues I think about is someone who's a school governor. What are our kids being taught in school? I think in terms of male mentors, I wouldn't completely dismiss your idea, but I think given that Labour aren't offering much else beyond this, and this is somehow seen as some kind of game-changing policy, to me, I find it slightly grating. Um, I find it slightly grating, and I think it misses the mark completely. I think that's entirely right. You know, if they were going to get rid of this... Um there's two child cap on benefits, which they've overtly said they're not going to do, uh, then I think you're right. This kind of stuff, it's, it's not, it's not going to change the world, but it's okay, fine. But they're saying money's tight. We can't do new things. Um, we can't really improve people's material conditions. It, it feels like pissing in the wind. And that's why it grates for me. And I do think it will be really one of those things where it just creates more, more jobs for the permanent political class. And finally... I don't really understand this obsession with, well, I do understand it. It's because they're all online all the time, like the rest of us. But this obsession with digital media. And this was really this was really brought home to me the other day. I was listening to a story on Radio 4 about the Pakistani election. And one of the pundits said, we can't be sure about the electoral integrity of the outcome in Pakistan because of fake news on TikTok. Okay, let's, let's ignore the fact that one of the candidates is probably going to die in prison because he's been uh, taken down by an anti-democratic coup involving the nation's military. That somehow is less important than TikTok because this frame of new media, moral panics, fake news, conspiracy theories is very alluring to legacy media. They love it. Why? It legitimizes them. Why? Because this stuff is a rival. Commercially, by the way, commercially. They have a huge vested interest in discrediting that stuff. I'm not saying it's perfect. There is loads of fake news. There are conspiracy theories. But there's a reason why it's become this central frame uh, by which to understand how many people engage with the news these days, which is using 
new media, YouTube, TikTok, Twitter. And I think that's a problem. And I certainly don't think politicians should be buying into it. You know, elsewhere in that story, um, uh, Bridget Phillipson talks about her child, seven-year-old child, having a smartphone. I don't think that's smart. Easy for me to say I don't have a seven-year-old. And I understand it's very hard for all parents out there because, of course, if they don't give their kid the smartphone, they say, well, everyone else has one. Why am I, you know, the loser in my friendship group without the smartphone? Which is why I think we probably need certain prohibitions on this stuff. Um, if you look into it, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates did not let their kids have smartphones. That's for a reason. And we know kids from the poorest economic backgrounds spend the most time on their smartphones. Really remarkable statistic when you think about it. So they're spending the most time to engage with things that may fragment concentration, uh, may undermine their ability to sleep or do schoolwork. They're spending the most time on the very platforms where the ultra-rich don't let their kids go. Doing something about that maybe would be more useful than creating this army of social media influencers. I could be wrong. Uh, but like you say, Mike, if nothing else, it's incredibly grating given the absence of meaningful responses to stagnant living standards, uh, as we've seen over the last 20 years from all parties, but of course, particularly relevant with Labour, given they should be coming in later this year. Next story. The United States remains the world's most powerful country, economically, culturally, politically, and militarily. Many say it resembles an empire, from having hundreds of overseas military bases around the world to the dollar being the global reserve currency. His State Department spokesperson, Matthew Miller, being asked about the influence the US could seek to exert over Israel in order to reduce civilian casualties in Gaza. You have so much leverage over the Israelis, and this is fundamental vision of the president. So you can use all the revenge you want, including weapons that you sell to Israel, to so, make sure that this plan is on the, at least on the right path for implementation, considering we have like short time between now and November. So one thing I will say about that that people often tend to forget is that Israel, like other countries in the region, is a sovereign country that makes its own decisions. The United States does not dictate to Israel what it must do, just as we don't dictate to any country what it must do. We present what we believe are the. We present what the we believe are the. <laughs> good one, Matt. We, we present no. I mean, come, but but come on, yeah. It's we we present stand up hour at the in the briefing room. We present what we believe are the best proposals to to achieve peace and security, and we will continue to do that. But Israel has to make its own decisions, just as every sovereign, independent country has to make its own decisions. Okay. Now, um, what did you say? What, what did you mean when you just said to, um, uh, that they have to take it? They have to, it doesn't mean that they have to take it in that we can dictate them. What I meant by they have to take it is okay. we can present all the options in the world. We can't control whether they take it or not. The United States doesn't tell anyone what to do. Uh, if you didn't hear what was said off mic by one reporter there, which is of course critically important, he said, quote, unless you invade them. Uh, we don't dictate to anyone what to do, least of all in the Middle East. Really? So Iran can now develop nuclear energy? After all, it's a sovereign country. Is Iraq a sovereign country? After all, its government asked the US to leave for its armed forces to vacate the country. They're still there. Uh, US personnel are also in Syria. 
Was Afghanistan a sovereign country when it was occupied for 20 years? Was Libya a sovereign country when Gaddafi was removed with help from Western militaries? Go further back. When the Iranian nationalist Prime Minister Dr. Mohammad Mossadegh was removed by the CIA and MI6 for wanting to bring oil into public ownership, was that not telling Iran what to do? The Monroe Doctrine treats any involvement by a foreign power in the affairs of the Americas as a potentially hostile act against the United States. Why? Because only they're allowed to interfere in the politics of countries like Chile, Guatemala, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Honduras. That's our job, not yours. And was it recognizing the sovereignty of Vietnam when the US fought an ultimately failed war there that killed a quarter of a million Vietnamese? The US doesn't tell anyone what to do. That's literally the basis of US foreign policy. It's all it does, telling people what to do. Mike, this was a surreal moment, wasn't it? Because you had this incredible conflict, so jarring, so obvious that it literally made this guy laugh between the professed claims of US foreign policy non-interference, respect, sovereignty, and the reality, which is they invade countries willy-nilly. Quite literally, as you say, Aaron, the premise of US foreign policy is to be intrusive, is to stick their noses in when often they don't, their noses aren't required to be in the business. I think that's the whole premise, the idea that the US is, are the protectors of democracy, the promoters of human rights. That's the rhetoric espoused by many who believe in the US's approach to foreign policy. So it was very kind of ironic. Um, and I think when it comes to the US and, and Israel, the US could be taking a far more kind of proactive approach in stopping the war on Gaza, but they're choosing not to, right? And I think the, the Israel lobby in Washington is quite strong and, and, and quite vocal and quite powerful. We know that. Um, and, and Biden's often done the thing that the Labour Party have done, which is they condemn, or he condemns rather, the, 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 the attacks on Gaza and the deaths of innocent civilians. But he does so in a way that's kind of like, oh, but you know, Israel has a right to defend itself. That's the general kind of tone of most of the liberal commentary on, on Israel. Israel relied quite heavily on US military aid, right? We know this. This is something that isn't a myth, isn't isn't some kind of like secret. This is well known. So the US could be taking a far more proactive role. And we know that the US in the past have taken a very intrusive approach to foreign policy. So they pick and choose their moments when it suits their agenda. So well put. Um, you know, the US is so assertive with this stuff when it matters, but then it's Israel, by the way, the number one recipient of US aid, uh, huge trading relations. You know, one of the very few countries the US sells F-35s to. We, we can't do anything, sorry. We can't do anything. Um, we don't invade. We don't interfere. We respect sovereignty. Were you respecting the sovereignty of the Democratic Republic of Congo when you oversaw the murder of Patrice Lubumba and his corpse was dissolved in an acid bath? Was that re was that respecting sovereignty? Uh, but no, we you know that on the one hand we're respecting sovereignty. On the other hand, oh, we can't not sell F-35s to Israel. That would be unfair. Clear double standard. Clearly ridiculous. Um, we've gone through five stories tonight, which is good, but normally that takes us over an hour. Mike, I think you were just too fluid, too fluent, too quick, too, uh, too what's the word? Uh, concise. Uh, in, my, in my mind, I'm thinking prolix, the opposite. Concise. Uh, so next time you're on Mike, and I do love being one half of the B team, make sure to drone on more just like me, then we can stretch it out now. <laughs> no time more monologues from me to come yeah we need more Mike Bancole dropping heat um, 
thanks to all of you for tuning in. Come back tomorrow for a, another live stream from 6pm. My name is Aaron Bastani. You've been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.